Welcome back to the Religionless Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I am your host, Jeff Turner, and I come to you today bearing, well, apologies. I apologize that there have been so few episodes published over the last several months. Um, Like most of you, I found myself with more time on my hands than I knew what to do with over the last year due to COVID. And in the last mm, one or two months, I found myself with less and less free time on my hands as things have sort of returned back to a new normal. And so I do apologize for the lack of new content. It has been my intention from the beginning to pump out uh, new content, you know, weekly, uh, monthly, bi-monthly at the very least, and, you know, weekly, ideally. But um, it's actually been two or three months now since I put out a new episode. And, you know, again, really, I do apologize for that. So here I am coming to you with a promise that there are new interviews lined up, um, new episodes that are going to be coming in the next month um, and beyond. Um, but today, I do not have an interview or a conversation. I simply have a live talk, a message, a sermon, if you're comfortable with that term, that I gave maybe one or two months ago at a church, right when things were kind of starting to open up just a little bit, um, that kind of represents where I have been spiritually and on my own walk with God, Christ, the last several years. It's sort of a good summation of where I have been. It's also mm, sort of like a thesis statement for the next book that I'm writing. It certainly doesn't encompass everything I'm going to write about because it's a book, and obviously books are way more dense than 45-minute long sermons, but it kind of like, mm, it's a good, well, I guess thesis statement, like I already said. So I hope you enjoy this message as kind of a little appetizer as we prepare to record more episodes in the coming days. I've got a lot of exciting guests coming on. Um, Guys like Mitch Horowitz, who some of you may know of, who is a leader in, let's say, like the alternative spiritual community. Um, I have guests like Tony Sai, who some of you may know from years back, who was uh, part of... um, the Grace Movement, who was a part of, uh, he was involved with John Crowder and that whole scene. Um, others as well. It's re- We've got a lot of great guests coming up, a lot of great conversations, a lot of great content coming at you, and I'm really excited to share it with you. Um, in the meantime, though, I hope you enjoy the sermon and this message that I gave a few months back that is simply called A Secret Order. A Secret Order. Um, uh, again, as, as I say in the intro to every podcast that I put out, if you believe in the message that we're spreading, if you believe in what we are doing, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com forward slash religionless, patreon.com forward slash R-E-L-I-G-O-N-L-E-S-S. There are you know several different tiers that you can Uh, subscribe to that will unlock you know various uh, that will unlock different content for you Um, it really really helps to keep us doing what we're doing and we appreciate it so very much also please uh, subscribe to this podcast and if you would go ahead and leave us a review preferably one involving five stars and that just, you know, totally sings our praises and talks about how it's changed your life and you've never been the same since listening. That would be really, really great. Anyways, guys, appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening today, and I really hope you enjoyed this message called A Secret Order. Peace. This morning I'm going to speak a message to you called The Secret Order. And don't worry, I'm not going to talk about the Illuminati or conspiracy theories this morning. 
I'm talking about a different kind of order. Um, and we'll get there momentarily. But uh, no, let's just go there right now. I could rattle on and on and on and on forever about all kinds of different things, but I'm just going to jump right into the message this morning so we have time to cover as much ground as possible. I haven't preached in a long time. It's kind of surreal. It's weird when you used to do this every weekend of your life, and then like for the last year you've done it maybe three or four times. It's so crazy. It's fun. I missed it. <laughs> so I've got a lot to say is what I'm trying to say this morning. I have like a year's worth, well, I've spoken here a couple times, but even so, I've got like a year's worth of stuff pent up in me. I was telling my wife yesterday, I'm like, I'm really looking forward to preaching tomorrow, but I'm really scared (laughs) for them. Like, so just throw something at me or like set an alarm on your phone if I'm going too long. I'll take a hint. I'm, yeah, why don't you go ahead and let's order in for the day. Yep. (laughs) Okay, so let's go ahead and open up. I think the, the, Bibles, the verses are going to be on the screen. If you like following along, you can. I'm going to begin in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 in just a moment. I had a dream when I was a young man, probably 10, 11 years old. It's possible I've recounted this year with you over the last year or so because it's been in the forefront of my mind and some of the thoughts that I've been processing and, 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 and working out with the Lord. But... Maybe when I was 10, 11, somewhere around there, I had this dream, a bizarre dream. And in this dream, I'm in the woods that I grew up running around and playing in that I knew like the back of my hand. I knew every, every little creek, every little you know, valley, every little you know, secret hiding spot, all the little forts my friends and I had set up here and there. There was these, the weird little dried up swamp area where there was this creepy black baby carriage where we also unearthed a mason jar full of rusty razor blades. Some weird stuff went down there, I'm sure. But you know, all these weird little places I knew I was very familiar with. I was never scared when I was in those woods. They felt like home to me. But I find myself in these woods in my dream, and they're very alien and very strange. And I learned early on, because I was a sufferer of night terrors and nightmares and things like that as a young man, because I grew up in a world populated by demons and devils around every corner. I grew up hearing stories from preachers and teachers about Demons here, demons there, demons everywhere. So it was a regular occurrence in my life to have night terrors, to wake up, you know, trying to say the name of Jesus to ward the devil away and all this kind of stuff. If you didn't grow up in an environment like that, lucky you. (laughs) But this was kind of a regular occurrence in my younger years. I would have dreams like this quite regularly. And so I became pretty good at recognizing when I was in a dream. You know, something would just be a little bit off. Usually the light switches wouldn't turn on, and I'm like, okay, this isn't normal. I'm in a dream. And so I could prepare myself in the dream, like, okay, whatever comes next isn't actually happening, but it's going to be scary (laughs) because we've been here before, you know. And there was little things I could notice, little, you know, things in my living room would just be a little bit different, or there might be like a weird gray haze over everything. And in this dream, I was picking up those vibes. And so I soon realized, okay, this is a dream. What comes next? What comes next is always scary, so prepare yourself for it. And I hear something like a radio broadcast just in my my imagination in the language of dreams, and it announces something like that aliens have landed, and they're now loose and roaming through the woods, so be on the lookout. And here I am. I just happen to be in the woods. And so, of course, I know. Okay, great. I know it's coming. 
I know it's coming. And so I look up, and there's these three figures standing at a distance. I can't make out their faces. They're blurred. It's as though someone took the Photoshop smudge tool and just kind of, you know, smudged their faces. I could see their forms, but not their features. And I'm terrified, because like I said, I was a sufferer from nightmares and night terrors, so I know this is not going to end well. Although I've never dealt with extraterrestrials in my dreams before, it was typically just your run-of-the-mill demons. So this was a treat, something different. So I go into my best warfare prayer mode, you know, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you know, talking like a, you know, a gruff-voiced southern preacher, you know, at 11 years old. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I rebuke you. I'm going for it, man. I'm going for it. And they take a step closer. And I'm like, well, that's not how this is supposed to work. <laughs> so, all right, maybe I need to put a little bit more uh, intensity and fire into this thing. So I, I give it another go, and I'm using bigger words now, words like blood, rebuke, you know. You know, going to town. And the more I do my rebuking, the closer they get to me, until we're nearly face-to-face, and I'm like, this is not the way this is supposed to work what's going on? So I'm face to face with these blurry faced creatures and I'm, I'm just going to town rebuking and I'm trembling and I'm, I, I know I'm dreaming, but even so I'm terrified. And all of a sudden these things, whatever it is, they just stop and they kind of look at each other frustrated. So as to say, he's not ready. And they walk away and I wake up. That dream stuck with me for years And I never understood what it was trying to communicate. I think I do now. Carl Jung, writing of the anima and the animus, if you're interested in such things, wrote, In all chaos, there is a cosmos. In all disorder, a secret order. In all chaos, there is a cosmos. In all disorder, a secret order. Order In everything that to you and I looks like utter chaos, there is a secret order working in the background. Everything that to you and I looks like disorder, there's a cosmos there. There's something orderly happening. We just don't see it. This thing called order is what the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus referred to as the logos. Brief history refresher on the concept of logos, because I know we've covered this before. Heraclitus, writing pre-Socrates, pre-Socratic, wrote of this thing that he, he basically, it's the structuring principle of reality in his mind. If you drilled down to the center of being and of existence itself, you would find this divine principle at work called the Logos, L-O-G-O-S. It's the structuring principle of reality in his mind. It is the thing that gives reality its shape. It is the thing, it's the hand in the glove. It's the thing that animates all that we see. It's the deepest truth of all truths. So whatever one believes that deepest truth of that logos is, is going to determine how they interpret what's going on out here. And so in Heraclitus's mind, in his opinion, the logos was this divine, let's say, vibration of violence 
between opposing pairs of things, things that didn't agree. He saw all of creation as being made up of opposites, things that did not agree, that were in a perpetual clash with one another. And it was the vibration of their violence that gave rise to the illusion of solidity in our world. It was a relationship, again, that existed between opposing pairs of things. And every now and then, these two opposing pairs would seem to merge into oneness, but they merged into oneness not because they actually came into oneness, but because one overcame and consumed the other. And so order, in his mind, came about as a result of this principle. At the heart of all reality, there are opposing pairs of things. And one overcomes the other, and the other overcomes the other. And there's just this, con- this, this is a constant thing that's happened all throughout the history of the cosmos. And this is what gives reality, well, this is what makes it reality. Now, in John chapter 1, the apostle John comes along and he takes this concept of logos, which is an established philosophical idea, and he turns it on his head and he defines it quite differently from how others were defining it at the time. Are you with me? John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. In the beginning was the word, and I'm just going to replace that word, word, with logos, because that is what the word is. In the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God. And the logos was God. (laughs) Now, in the mind of ancient Greek philosophy... Remember, logos is a relationship that exists between pairs of things that disagree, but it's a relationship of disagreement. It's a relationship of violence. It's a relationship of one of the two opposing pairs consuming the other, and this just going on and on throughout the history of the cosmos. John flips the concept of logos on his head, and he says, in the beginning was the logos, but the logos was not opposed to anything. It was not standing in opposition. It was with God. And the word with here can be translated to be toward or face to face with. And it denotes intimacy. So John takes the concept of logos and he flips it on his head and he says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what the structuring principle of reality actually is. It's not a relationship of violence that exists exists between opposing pairs. It's a relationship of face-to-faceness, of agreement, and of intimacy that exists between the members of the Godhead. That is the deepest truth of all truths. That is what lies at the center of being itself. And then John takes it a step further. He says, not only was this Logos face-to-face with God, this Logos was God. So it's not that it's a separate thing even. They merge into oneness by their agreement with one another, whereas the Heraclitean Logos seems to merge into oneness because one overcomes and overwhelms the other. But the Logos of John, (laughs) the mystery that he's unveiling here is that everything is one thing because at the center of all things is God. And God is face to face with God. (laughs) God is face-to-face with God in the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. And that is what lies at the heart of being itself. These three agree. Therefore, these three are one. So the thing that keeps reality a-moving is this reality of, or is this relationship of oneness and agreement that exists between the members of the Godhead, the members of the Trinity. Now, this is quite a paradigm shift. 
This is quite a, a shift in how one sees and interprets the world. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 says, Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. What does that mean? That means that the divine nature, which at its core is what? The Logos was with God. The Logos was God. The relationship of unity that exists between the three members of the Godhead. That's the deepest truth of all truths. From the beginning of creation, these traits have been on display in the created world. So that men are without excuse, Paul says in Romans. So it's there. It was observable. It could be seen and it could be noticed. Heraclitus saw it, but he misinterpreted it. He saw the principle at work, but he misinterpreted it as being a relationship of friction and division because he saw how one thing seems to become the other, how things seem to become one. But he understood that as meaning they become one because one overwhelms and consumes the other. Whereas John says, no, all things are one because at the center of all things are three that agree and therefore are one. So this principle's always been there. It's always been on display. But it's been misunderstood and it's been misinterpreted because we had not yet met the key that unlocks the mystery face to face. John chapter 14, verses 6 through 7. Is this making sense yet? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Now this verse, pardon me, this verse is often used to communicate the idea that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And I'm not here to dispute that. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. That's how we read this verse because we come from a mindset that everything's about avoiding hell and going to heaven. That really wasn't the first century mindset in Second Temple Judaism. It really wasn't. That actually was something that came about much later. Jesus isn't saying, hey, if you want to avoid hell, I'm the only way to avoid it. That's not what's being said here. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. No one comes to the Father. No one really understands or experiences the reality of the Father apart from what I'm revealing and making known. They'd been asking him, we don't know where you're going. Tell us the way. Show us the way. Show us the way to get to where you're going. And he's like, you know the way already. We don't know the way or else we we wouldn't be asking you if we knew it. And Jesus says, let me make it clear. I am the way. So you know it. Because you know me. So you know the way. You know what the journey toward the Father looks like. The way to that experience. You know what it is because you know me. I am the way. The way you travel to get there will look like what I am embodying and presenting you with. I am the truth you will encounter. I am the life you will find. From now on, you get it. Right, guys? Because I just told you the secret. The way to where I'm going, it's me. I'm the divine pattern. I'm what you will see play out in your life. I'm the way. There's no experience of the Father that can be understood outside of what I'm showing you. We have used this scripture in the past to limit how and where 
one can experience the reality of the Father. But this statement of Jesus was not meant to set limitations on how God can reveal God's self. This statement was meant to liberate us to encounter God in places we might never think one could encounter God. For example, in the joining together of things, we think opposed to one another, which is what the Heraclity and Logos was always trying to set, against, set opposites against each other. Whereas what Jesus says is things that don't seem like they go together, go together. In fact, they're one thing. There's a secret order in all chaos. In all chaos, there is a cosmos. In all disorder, there is something orderly at work. Where you see opposition, things that don't agree, the divine logo says to you, they agree. And they're one thing. But you don't get that if you don't look at Jesus and see the key. Because what is the key that we see in Jesus? The fullness of divinity and the fullness of humanity dwell together in one being without either being contradicted or compromised one bit. In Jesus, the fullness, Jesus, I mean, this is theology 101. This is theology like 0.01. But like, Jesus is not 50% human and 50% divine. Jesus is fully God and fully man. So in this being, in Jesus, in the Christ... The fullness of humanity and the fullness of divinity dwell in unity. Neither one is diluted. Neither one is compromised. Perfect union between things we don't think go together. We think one has to decrease in order for the other to increase. We think one has to be shed so that the other could show up. And yet Jesus shows up and says, fully God, fully man, also fully intact. This, therefore, is the key. This is the way. This is the truth. This is the life. And this is how we encounter God by realizing. Mm. See, we've placed limitations on how, where, when, through whom God can be seen and experienced. (laughs) But the Logos reveals mm, not limitation, but liberation. Let me talk about this limitation versus liberation idea for a moment. In mystical Judaism, there's this, um, I won't go into it all. Basically, okay, there's this idea of chesed in in Jewish mystical thought. And chesed represents unadulterated divine power. It is God in God's fullness. Raw, divine power. And the word chesed means flow. Flow. Not flow in a positive sense, but actually flow in a destructive sense. It's like a burst dam. It's a tsunami. It's just raw power. Okay, It's there. It is what it is. But it's also destructive because it is what it is. For you or I to experience that raw power, well, things not, might not work out so well for us. <clears throat> so God applies a limitation called gevura to the chesed. And it's not a limitation that limits in the way that we think of limitation. It's a limitation that liberates this divine flow to become something useful and positive. It's a limitation that brings liberation. So it's like a guitar. If I just go and strum the open strings, I'm going to hit E, A, D, G, B, E. It's not going to really be harmonious. I can't really play a song like that. It's not really too much you can do with that. 
So what do you do? You limit the oscillation of the strings by playing a chord, right? You apply your fingers to the fretboard and you play a chord and you limit the strings oscillation, but in so doing, you liberate the instrument to do what it was meant to do. The open strings are just reckless divine flow. But when you apply limitation, you liberate the thing to be what it is. And so let's say you learn G. You learn how to play the chord G. Well, then it's suggested that there's other chords that go along with that. So then now these other chords all make sense. Okay, so G, A, B, C, D, E, F sharp. Okay, these all go together. Okay, this is the key of G. And so then you learn how to play a song in the key of G. And then you learn, I can play the same song in the key of A, and it's the same song in a different key. Huh, that's weird. Same song, different key. I can play it in B flat, same song, different key. Once, see, once you learn the one thing, it just keeps going and going and going, and it just keeps spreading and liberating this instrument to be what it's meant to be. And then you start to realize, once you learn all that, you're like, oh, I can play country music on this. I can play folk music on this. I can play the blues. I can play rock and roll. I can do, oh, there's all these genres now that open up to me that you can now understand, you know, and then you can, if you learn how to play the guitar, you can pretty much learn how to play the bass. Like, it's, they, they go kind of hand in hand. If you know, whatever. So then it's like a whole new instrument could open itself up to you. It's like, see, the limitation brought liberation. It seems like limitation being placed on this divine flow, but it's a limitation that liberates this thing to become what it's meant to be. And so <clears throat> we have the concept of God, just raw, pure chesed, God, <laughs> scary. What does it mean? Nobody knows. It can mean anything. It's dangerous because it's a word we could use to abuse and murder in the name of and justify all sorts of atrocities in the name of because it's just pure, raw flow. Hased. So God applies Gavora in the person of Jesus to the concept of God. And the application of this limitation liberates now the concept of God to be what it actually is. Because whereas when you just have God, it can be destructive. When God applies limitation in the person of Jesus, now God becomes something harmonious. Amen. Now God becomes something not that is just this discordant mess, but it's something that tells you things in your life that you don't think go together. Go together. Your being, which is shattered and scattered all over the place in 10,000 different directions because you don't think this belongs and you don't think that belongs and this certainly doesn't belong and that, heck no, all of it belongs. Whereas the concept of God scatters you into 10,000 pieces. Your humanity has no place at the table of God because your humanity is offensive to God. Your humanity stinks in his nostrils. But when God applies limitation in the person of Jesus, you look and you see God and humanity dwell together in perfect unity in this one person. Therefore, not only does my humanity belong at the table, my humanity is part of the experience of God. So this is a limitation that liberates, not a limitation that destroys. John 14, 6 is not God saying, hey, there's only one way to do this. And any other way is going to send you to hell. 
and it has to, and then of course, whatever you think that way is, whatever denomination you grew up in, whatever your proclivities and predispositions are, of course, that is going to be the way that you strictly interpret Jesus as speaking about here. And so again, you just have this EADGBE open strings, chaos, discordant nonsense, and it hurts everyone's ears because, what? But you apply the limitation of Jesus, and it includes everything about you. So, early Christians understood this. Early Christians saw the secret order, the cosmos within the apparent chaos, when they beheld the face of Jesus. And it unlocked things in their world that previously remained locked up. Let me read you some quotes. Are you guys okay? St. Augustine, this comes from Retractions, Book 1, Chapter 13, Section 3. He writes, Further, I have said this, that, quote, This is the Christian religion in our time. The safest and surest salvation is to know it and to follow it. And now he's going to give a little commentary on what he meant. He said, this was said in accordance with the name, not in accordance with the truth of which this is the name. For the truth itself, which is now named the Christian religion, existed and was not missing among the ancients from the beginning of the human race until Christ came in the flesh. From whom the true religion, which already existed, began to be called Christianity. On that account, I said, this is the Christian religion in our time. Not because it did not exist in former times, but because it got this name in later times. St. Augustine, of original sin fame, who gave us that delightful and abusive little doctrine, also said, look, I once commented on the Christian religion in our time. Let me tell you what I meant by that. What I meant by that is the Christian religion in our time is called the Christian religion, but it has existed since the beginning of humanity. It just didn't have a name yet. Anywhere that the nature of Christ was being manifested and people were living in accordance with that nature, Christianity, though unnamed, was going on. Now we've simply seen the key. Now we simply have the way, the truth, and the life in the person of Jesus. So now we can look backwards and connect all these dots that did not connect before. All these shards that were scattered here, there, and everywhere. We can gather together into one single vessel now. And we can see where what we now call Christianity has in some way, shape, or form always been present. See, early Christian theologians believed in, many of them believed in something that's called the Prisca Theologia, which basically was a way of saying that the truth of Christianity has always existed everywhere. That there have been, even in pagan religions, there were prophets that would arise that spoke the truth, that knew who Jesus was, but just didn't know who Jesus was. And how stupid would we be if we didn't believe that? Do we really think God left himself without a witness in the entire planet and just one people group he showed himself to? That's absurd. It's ridiculous. And early Christians didn't believe it because of its absurdity and ridiculousness. Listen, when early Christians would preach to their Jewish brethren, what did they do to unveil Jesus? 
Did they tell them stories about the human Jesus? No, they went into their sacred texts and they showed them where Christ was always present in these texts. Texts, And they brought him out of these texts and they said, it's always been there. We just didn't know the name. We just didn't know who this was, but it's always been there. Now we're fine with that when it comes to preaching to Jews because that's also part of our sacred tradition. But when Paul went to Athens, did he preach Moses? Did he go to the Torah? No, he used Epimenides and Eretus, respectively, two pagan poets, worshipers of Zeus. When he said, look, I've walked around your city and you're really doing good when it comes to religion. Lots of idols. Good job, guys. You've really got this thing down. <laughs> However, <clears throat> there was one little item I noticed as I was passing through, and there was this altar to an unknown god, this sort of placeholder you've left there in case any others should, should choose to show up and uh, reveal themselves at some point. I'm here to tell you who that is. I'm here to tell you who you have worshipped in ignorance, he says. I am here to show you who you have lived, moved, and had your being in all this time, but just didn't know the name of. I'm here to show you that we are all his offspring, as your own poets have said. Yeah. And when your poets said it, they were talking about Zeus, not Yahweh. And when your poets wrote, in him we live and move and have our being, that was a hymn about the resurrection of Zeus. And Paul says, this is God revealing Christ to us. See, early Christians realized when they looked upon the person of Jesus that what's being said is things that don't seem to go together go together, which means that in all things that seem chaotic and disorderly, there is a secret order, and there is a cosmos with this, within this chaos. things that don't seem to make sense, things, things that we don't think could possibly play into the story of what God is doing in our lives, play into the story of what God's doing in our lives. Okay, are you guys still with me? No one has thrown anything yet. we really even raised a fuss, so I think I must be doing pretty good. St. <laughs> Seravim of Serov, who is a, one of the most beloved and well-known um, saints in the Orthodox tradition, says this, the presence of the Spirit of God also acted in the pagans who did not know the true God, because even among them God found for himself chosen people. Such, for instance, were the virgin prophetesses called Sibyls, who vowed virginity to an unknown God, but still to God, the creator of the universe, the all-powerful ruler of the world, as he was conceived by the pagans. Though the pagan philosophers also wa uh, wandered in the darkness of ignorance of God, yet they sought the truth, which is beloved by God, and on account of this God-pleasing seeking, they could partake of the Spirit of God, for it is said that the nations who do not know God practice by nature the demands of the law and do what is pleasing to God. Dante Alighieri, who gave us the Inferno, wrote this, the whole world was already pregnant with the true faith, sown by messages from the eternal kingdom. This is mind-blowing stuff to me, that Early Christians, many early Christians, not all early Christians, that's a really mixed bag when you say the early church believed this. That's like saying the church today believes this. We all believe a bunch of different stuff, okay? But there was a segment within the early church that believed their job 
was not to kick down the doors of other cultures like the Kool-Aid man and show up and tell them, you've had everything wrong, and we're here to tell you what's right. When we went to the Celts, what did we do? We looked at their winter solstice celebrations, and we found where Christ had been hidden in all of it, which is where our Christmas traditions come from. And we're all the richer for it. So Christians who complain, you know, pagan traditions, and we, we should, early Christians were smarter than us. <laughs> they weren't pagan traditions to them. This was the eternal Christ welling up within people who did not yet know his name, manifesting his nature, pregnant with the reality of Jesus, so that when those who had seen the key showed up, it could be easily unlocked. The image and the nature of God could be liberated with the proclamation of Jesus, and they could see, not that we have to pitch all of this stuff, but we can now realize, oh, we've always lived and moved and had our being in this. We just didn't know. And now this all plays into who we are and who we become. I wonder if the paltriness of Western Christianity comes from the fact that we, mostly non-Jews, have adapted a Jewish version of doing Christianity because we didn't think the cultures we came from had anything redemptive in them. So we pitched all of our traditions overboard. And we basically tried to become converted Jews and called ourselves Christians. I wonder what riches there are hidden in traditions that we would tell a person they must forsake completely. I, I have a missionary friend, fantastic guy. I, I, if, listen, I love you, but if I was broken down on the side of the road and it was between him or you giving me a ride home, I'd go with him. He's a good guy. Vietnam vet, top-notch, beautiful soul but I disagree with him theologically almost completely. I was a pastor, a young pastor, sitting on the front pew listening to him preach one day, and he began to talk about how when they would go into um, villages that had never heard the gospel before, and he ministered in East Asian countries where <clears throat> ancestral worship and veneration is obviously a big part of the culture. He said the first thing that would happen is we'd get them all saved, and then they would spend the first several weeks weeping and wailing at the makeshift altar, bemoaning the fact that their ancestors, whom they had always thought were with them and helping them in a part of their lives, had been burning in eternal fire for thousands of years. And I thought to myself right then and there, that is not the good news of the gospel. If the first thing the gospel does is bring trauma, it's not the gospel. The blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. But that's our approach to things. And when I say our, I'm being general. But the Western church, that's been our approach. That you have this pre-Christ life and this post-Christ life. And everything that happened pre-Christ has to be immediately jettisoned once you encounter Jesus. There is nothing of any value there. It's garbage. Leave it. Burn it. And move on. If any man be in Christ, we say, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The language in that scripture actually reads something more like, if God is regarding humanity as being in Christ, it means that a new creation has come. 
It means that we are living in a new creation if God is regarding people in Christ, not in Adam. It means that we live in a new world. So the scripture is likely not trying to tell you that there's this pre-Christ, post-Christ existence, and now you're a new creation, and everything that happened before you were a new creation, just throw it away. It doesn't figure into your story anymore. All your ancestors, quote-unquote, metaphorically speaking, are burning in hell. Now move on and become a Westerner like us. No, 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 no. In the chaos, there's a cosmos, and all... Disorder, there is a secret order at work. Things that we don't think belong together, belong together. And it is in the face of the God-man, Jesus, that this truth is revealed. Y'all okay? (laughs) You can tell I'm getting into preacher mode when I say y'all. There is no cultural reason whatsoever for me to ever say y'all, except I'm getting ready to preach. None. Okay. Paul had a name for this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. How many times have we read that scripture and I think completely missed what Paul was saying? Let me read it to you. Colossians 1, 24 and onward. I am rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. What is that mystery? Wait, first of all, how long has it been hidden? How long has it been hidden? A couple decades? How long has this mystery been hidden? Ages and generations, it's just simply now been revealed to his saints. To them, God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles, not even Jews, Gentiles, pagans, idol worshipers, are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's the mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is he whom we proclaim. Which Christ did Paul go around proclaiming? Yes, the literal earthly Jesus who lived and died and resurrected, but also the Christ that had been hidden for ages and generations, even in Gentiles. You do not get around that. That's what he said his mission was. To open the eyes of the blind, isn't that his calling given him on the road to Damascus? What were we blind to? This mystery It's been hidden for ages and generations. We've been going through life thinking we're separate from the divine. Thinking that everything before this conversion experience means and meant nothing because we were disconnected. And Paul says, my mission is to go and proclaim a mystery that's been present but mysterious until revealed in the person of Jesus. And it is him that I proclaim. Not Jesus out there in the clouds somewhere, but the Jesus that lives in you. The Christ that lives in you. Same Christ, same spirit, made known and revealed by preaching the Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father. If all we have is a Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father that we encountered at the age of 30, and that's the only Jesus we know, we're missing the bigger picture. Because the bigger picture is we've always lived and moved and had our being in him. And he's always lived and moved and had his being in us. 
And there's never been a moment we've been separated. And there's not one fragment of our being that does not belong. Frank Lobbock, a missionary to the Philippines in the early 1900s, he was a missionary among Muslims. He says, I must confront these people with a divine love which will speak Christ to them. Though I never use his name, they must see God in me, and I must see God in them. Not to change the name of their religion, but to take their hand and say, come, let us look for God. What was his method? He's like, I'm not going to come to you and tell you. Here's the biggest and most urgent thing. Change what you've been doing and start doing what I'm doing. It's like, my mission is to see God in them as much as I see God in myself. Draw it out of them. Look for God together with them and reveal to them how God's been present in their lives all along. Then we'll get to the name. But if all I have is a name, what am I doing? You guys okay? Okay. Sorry. Carol Hauslander, a Catholic mystic Christian, writes this. I was in an underground train, a crowded train, in which all sorts of people jostled together, workers of every description, going home at the end of the day. Quite suddenly I saw with my mind, but as vividly as a wonderful picture, Christ in them all. But I saw more than that. Not only was Christ in every one of them, living in them, dying in them, rejoicing in them, sorrowing in them, but because he was in them and because they were here, the whole world was here too, here in this underground train, not only the world as it was at that moment, not only all the people in all the countries of the world, but all those people who had lived in the past and all those yet to come. I came out into the street and walked for a long time in the crowds. It was the same here on every side and every passerby, everywhere. Christ. John Butler, an Orthodox Christian mystic thinker, writes this. Gradually, I began to realize that the mysterious goal, whatever that was, was present everywhere in every situation in person. We just didn't see it. Instead, we saw covers, masks of our own making, which appeared in myriad forms, veiling both our own eyes and everyone else's. The first need was to clear our own. One evening, I was in an underground train. Good things happen in underground trains, apparently. And I had a sudden realization of each person being Christ incarnate, yet covered with a greater or lesser uh, cloud of unknowing. I see each one state clearly and feel I could take each in my hands and by peeling off the layers of doubt and ignorance, reveal in every one a model of Christ. How beautiful a gospel is that? But that's sort of looking at it through a telescope, you know? That's looking at the larger object out there in the cosmos through a telescope. But as with the macro, so with the micro, you know? On earth as it is in heaven, if you look through a microscope, I'm sorry, before I was saying looking through a telescope, I think I may have said microscope, but I meant telescope. <laughs> but what you see through the telescope is the same thing you see through the microscope. So if that's what we see on a cosmic scale, like when we look at humanity, it's also what we should see when we look at ourselves, individuals. Not just that, you know, culturally speaking, God had impregnated the whole world with the truth or that it was always there in a form and we just simply needed the key to unlock it. It's also the truth about you as an individual and not even just on a theological kind of metaphysical scale, you know, of like I've always been in Christ, whatever. Yes, you have, and Christ has always been in you. Yes, that's the truth. But there is a secret order and a cosmos in the chaos just of your own life. I, I'm not just talking about cultures and 
the bigger picture. I'm talking about us as individuals. That the parts of your life that you don't think fit, that you don't think belong, belong. The parts of your life that you think you have to throw overboard, God wants to be seated next to. <clears throat> My father was baptized in the Holy Spirit at a full gospel businessmen's fellowship meeting in the 70s, in his mid-20s, I believe. If you don't know what that is, join the club, because not a lot do. But if you do, consider yourself an initiate, okay? <clears throat> he was a recent convert to Protestantism after having been a lapsed, disinterested Catholic. His teens and 20s were, you know, marked by alcoholism, drug use, and from what I gather, a rather rocky marriage to my mother in the earlier years. Um, the way he describes himself in those days, again, if it was between you, the missionary, and my dad picking me up on the side of the road, I'd still go with the missionary. <laughs> <clears throat> and he was a truck driver, and he's given a tract by one of his coworkers who used to harass him and invite him to this, that, and the other. So he's in traffic one day. <clears throat> and I can't remember the street, but I've heard the story a thousand times. I know it was in front of a Kmart down by Detroit somewhere. And he's bored because he's in traffic. And so he pulls up this tract, and he begins to read how he can be born again. And there in the cab of his truck, he repeats the prayer it says to repeat. And he has this beautiful encounter with the divine that changes his life. A few weeks later, he's invited to this full gospel businessman's fellowship meeting, however it's said. It's a mouthful. And the guy is giving a talk on how to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, you, you guys are from the Pentecostal tradition, I'm sure, so I don't have to explain that to you. Believed to be the second subsequent to salvation experience, at least in the denomination I grew up in. It was always said to be marked by speaking in other tongues as the initial physical evidence of the experience. I'm not saying that's what I believe or what you need to believe. That's just the tradition I grew up in, and that was the tradition he was in at the moment. And so this guy's talking about this experience. And he gives an invitation at the end for those who want to receive it to receive it. Only here's how he does it. He doesn't bring them up and lay hands on them. He says, all right, I want everyone in the room to begin to pray and worship in English audibly, as loud as you can. And everyone starts praying and worshiping in English audibly, as loud as they can. And my dad said right there and then, he decided, if this is real, it's the most important thing in the universe, and I want it, and I'll give my everything to it. If it's real, if this God thing is real, there couldn't possibly be a more important thing on the planet, in the universe, anywhere, in the multiverse. This is the most important thing going, if it's true. And so I will give myself to it completely. So I'm open to this experience right now. And then he heard all the guys begin to pray and, you know, shout and worship in English. And so he just simply said to himself in the naivete of his youth, I can do that. And so he does it. He just starts mimicking what everyone else is doing making the same sounds everyone else is making and having a good time. And then the speaker says, all right, now I want everyone in here to stop worshiping in English, and I want you to begin to worship in your heavenly tongue, in your heavenly language. And so everyone in the room starts worshiping in tongues. And my dad just looks around and says, I can do that. And so he just starts making noises. <laughs> he just starts rondying and shondying and ta-ta-ta-tying his bow tie and spelling Coke backwards, E-K-O-C, you know, he starts... <clears throat> and doing all that, and um, as he's doing it, he says something just comes over him and has this 
raw power just starts to flow out of him like a river. And his life has changed. A few weeks later, he's in Bible college. He's been a pastor now for 30 plus years. Been married to my mother, going on 50 years this year. All of the issues that I have with evangelical Christianity, culturally speaking, none of it comes from anything I ever saw in the life of my father or mother. The best example of it, I think, that exists on the planet. He's the real deal. What he experienced was real, and it changed his life, and I am the beneficiary of that experience. Growing up, I always wanted to encounter God like that, because I'd heard the story since I was a kid. And so I went after it. I was always obsessed with the supernatural. I was always obsessed with anything paranormal, supernatural, whether it was aliens, Bigfoot, or Jesus. I was into it. Okay? Always. So as a young man, I was always obsessed with the paranormal, always obsessed with the supernatural. The only avenue I had to experience this in, though, was Pentecostal Christianity, so I always wanted to have the experience my dad had. I went after it like a madman, like a madman, like a madman. Never happened. Never happened. Plenty of people tried to push me down at altars, but I resisted them like I resisted the devil, and they fled, okay? I am not letting you push me down, okay? So I had my stance. I'd rear up, like, give it your best shot. If it's going to be real, it's going to be real, right? But I wanted it with every fiber of my being. The Brownsville Revival happens in the mid-'90s. We make several pilgrimages down there. I have some experiences, but not the one I was after, not the one that I was really seeking, not the one that really I thought would satisfy that craving in my soul. I wanted the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I wanted to speak in tongues. I wanted what my dad had. So we come home. From one of our trips down to Brownsville, we went down as a youth group. And everyone's praying around the altar at the end, you know, because the theory was if you go to where the revival is happening, you can catch it like COVID and come back to your hometown and cough it all over the place and give it to everyone else. And so we're up at the altar coughing on each other, trying to pass that anointing back and forth. And everyone's like, all right, Jeff, it's time for you to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's going to happen tonight. Gosh, darn it. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. And so everyone gathers around me. They're all slapping their big old sweaty teenage hands on me, praying for me, you know, speaking in tongues, shaking me around. I don't feel anything but annoyance because you guys are slapping me. And, but I want it. And I still want it. And then they start to say, if you would just scream Jesus at the top of your lungs, you get it. And I'm like, that ain't happening, man. And my wife was there. And, um, well, my now wife, my then not even girlfriend at the time, and she was encouraging me along the same lines. And I was talking to her about it the other night, and she's like, Jeff, I just wanted to go home. So I just figured if I could get you to yell, maybe something would happen and we could go home. But, <laughs> but <clears throat> so anyways, nothing. I leave disappointed. Later that year, we go to a missions trip in Belize. We're doing this youth camp for these kids in the middle of the jungle. And, um, you know, it's, it's baptism in the Holy Spirit night at, at youth camp. If you've ever been to youth camp, there's salvation, uh, baptism in the Holy Spirit night, um, calling into ministry night, and then I don't know what the other one is, maybe get the sin out of your life night or something, I don't know. But it was baptism in the Holy Ghost night, and we're out there in the middle of the jungle in this little pavilion, and everyone, they invite all the counselors, which was all of us kids who were there on a missions trip, to go and pray for these younger kids to receive the baptism in the Spirit. They're like, only if you've received it yourself. And I was the only one among this lot of people who I knew. I was 10,000 times more intense and passionate then. And yet all of them, they've just had the experience where they spoke in tongues. So they're allowed to. And I'm sitting there in the, I'm walking outside of the pavilion like, God, this really sucks. Like, I'm more on fire than any of them. And I can't be, uh, this is ridiculous. And so I'm like, God, please, you know, fill me with the spirit. Fill me, nothing. Later that year, we go to this youth conference, youth leaders conference, Somebody preaches on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm just determined I'm going to get it this time. 
This kid comes and lays hands on me, nothing. He comes back and gives me a little prophetic word. I apply it, and he lays hands on me. And I kind of fall over a pew and say a few words that weren't English. And it was pretty cool, but it wasn't what my dad had. But I called that my baptism in the Holy Spirit moment. And I lived off that for a while, but deep inside, didn't scratch that itch. Didn't really scratch that itch. I'm not saying it wasn't real. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I think it was real. I think it did happen. But for whatever reason, it didn't hit me the way it did my dad. Years later, I'm in my early 20s. I'm up at a cabin listening to a very depressing message by a very depressing preacher about being desperate and hungry for God and never relenting and going after it with everything you have. And at the end of this sermon, I'm just fed up. And I go out at night, and I'm just walking down these dirt roads, probably within an inch of getting attacked by a black bear every couple seconds. I don't know. And I'm like, God, come on. No one has gone after you more than I have. I'm sure that wasn't true, but dude, I went after it. I prayed 8 to 12 hours a day when I was 16 years old. I was fasting every other day of my life from 16, 17, 18 years old. I went after this thing like a madman. If anyone should have got it just by being intense. And I'm like, God, come on. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. A tingle, a goosebump, a single goosebump. Nothing. Right then and there, I just rip open my chest and say, God, if I'm wrong about everything, I think I'm right about. If all my theology is screwed up, jacked up, backwards, keeping me from being who I am and receiving, I don't care about any of it, none of it, all of it. I throw it out, have it. I don't care. I just want to know you. From that moment on, my faith began to crumble until I became an atheist while being a pastor at the same time. That moment was more powerful in my spiritual life than any experience I've ever had around an altar, than any experience I've ever had in response to a preacher's preaching, me forsaking my faith, was more powerful than any of it. Do you want to know why? Because I exhaled. And you can't inhale until you exhale. You can't breathe in until you let go of your last breath. And it was in that moment of desperation that I let go of my last breath. And my words were this. If this is real, <laughs> then it's the most important thing in the world, and I'm going to give myself to it. That was, my dad said, that was what my dad said on the night that he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. The other thing he said was, I can do that. I read of pastors who became atheists and abandoned their faith, and I was emboldened by their boldness and their honesty and their willingness to just say, I can't lie about this anymore. And so I said, I can do that. And I did that. And what happened was, all of a sudden, everything that I thought I laid down came back to me with the force of a hurricane. And at this point in my life, I can tell you that I have never felt more 
saturated in the goodness of God. I have never been more conscious of who I am as a son and of who God is as my father. Kind of like what happened to my dad, only our stories couldn't possibly look any more different from one another. See, my dad grew up in, a, in chaos, and so his experience of God looked like an orderly one. I grew up in the order of the aftermath of that experience, and so I needed an experience of God that looked like things being shaken up. Because you can't inherit order that comes from someone else's experience. And what I've come to understand God to really be in action is the disruption of our patterns, that that's where you find God. When what you've been doing is disrupted, that's a God encounter. And for me, the God encounter, the greatest encounter with God wasn't going to look like speaking in tongues and falling down in an altar because that was life to me. To me, being baptized in the spirit, if you will, was going to look like having it all stripped from me and becoming an atheist. So that what? On the other side of it, I could inhale because I exhaled and I let go. And for years and years and years, I wrestled with the decision that I made to be the person that I am. Because it meant in some way I had to walk away from what my dad gave me, which he paid a price for. But I just couldn't exist in that world anymore because I don't see God that way anymore. My mind's been changed. I can't, I can't unsee what I've seen. I can't. I, I, I can't possibly unsee what I've seen. And for years I struggled with it because there's no animosity. There's no hatred. There's no even tension there. But I had to walk away from something that was precious to him. And it hurt me, and I struggled with it. And it probably hurt him a little bit, and he probably struggled with it as well. Until I realized it's all one thing. <laughs> you know, rabbis taught us that when you say the name Yahweh, it's meant to simulate the sound of breathing. That's where the name comes from, likely. Yah. <laughs> You know, it's, it simulates the inhale and the exhale. That means that part of God's nature is the exhale experience. The nature of God is not just the inhalation experience. Sometimes the experience of God is the exhale. I inherited my father's exhale, so I had to embark on my own journey of exhalation so that I could inhale. But it's all one process. It's all one process of breathing and being alive. They're not two different things. But if you zoom in on them in a moment and you, and you control T and stretch them out infinitely this way and that, it seems like this much bigger thing than it is. But it's just, it's a process. It's the same thing. It's one process. So this experience of mine that I felt like totally made me break away from and divorce this other thing, it's one thing. It's all the same thing. It's all the same experience. But for me, it looked like this. And for him, it looked like that. And that was when I realized what my dream meant. That there were all these things in my life that were separate and fragmented. And I was going after God with everything I had. But the more... I went after it. The more the thing I thought I should be repelling came close, <laughs> the more the thing that I thought the name of Jesus should have chased off, the closer it came and the closer it came and the closer it came and the closer it came until eventually I just wasn't ready for that experience. And it departed until I was able to understand what was happening. My going after God with everything I had 
resulted in things I thought should be chased away coming closer. And the point was for me to become a whole person, to embrace my history, my present, everything, all the fragments that I didn't think belonged. That's what God was trying to communicate to me. That from the beginning, you've been pregnant with this reality. Every part, every bit, every fragment, every, everything, it all belongs. It's all part of it. You don't have to live on this side of your personal experience with God and discount the rest. Everything is included. Everything belongs. And that is what it means to be saved. <laughs> For it to dawn on you that you've never been anything but in his arms. He's never been anywhere but present with you. And now you're invited to make sense of a story that you were told you had to throw in the fireplace and forget about. Now you're not just half a person who got saved 20 years ago or five years ago or five days ago, and everything you've done up until this point is now nothing. No, you're now a whole being with a whole story, all of which can be redeemed now and read in light of who you know God to be as revealed in Jesus. See, in the chaos, there's a cosmos. In the disorder, there is order. And that looks like all the fragments of your being being drawn together into a singularity so that creation can happen and you can become who you're supposed to be. But if how we use the gospel is to scatter... <laughs> No wonder we're always adrift and not knowing who we are and having no sense of identity and having to come to the altar and get saved 20 times and all this stuff trying to... F the salvation process is all of you being drawn into oneness. And we fight it. The more we fight it, the closer it comes, the closer it comes, the closer it comes. So what of your story is God trying to get you to include? What pages that you've thrown in the fire is God calling you to look back on and redeem? What part of your story that you've control A backspaced is God calling you to go back and re-understand? Because so many of us, we go through life half a person, quarter of a person, a very small percentage of a person because we think certain things just don't go together. But the mystery revealed in Jesus is that that which we think opposes this, it's just one thing. And you're one thing. Pre-Christ, post-Christ, post-Christ, pre-Christ, whatever, no matter how many times you go back and forth, you're one thing, and that is a beloved child of God. So let the fragments come together. Let that which seems alien to you, like what seemed alien to me in my dream, what seems utterly foreign and threatening and something to be chased away, 
let it come together. Because some of you, the reason you feel so weak and depleted is because you're depleted. You are not a whole person. There's 20, 30, 40% of your life that you have cut yourself off from. But there is strength to be drawn from your history in the same way that there was strength to be drawn from the traditions that early Christians went and preached to. The message was not your ancestors all went to hell. The message was, oh, look at how Christ was present in everything you've always been, you've always done and had. So those parts of your story you think absolutely devoid of God and you've written Ichabod over top of. There is an encounter with God waiting for you there. So let's let God do what God does best and make things that we don't think go together, (laughs) come together.